Welcome to Building LA, a podcast about the buildings and projects shaping the future of Los Angeles, hosted by me, Sam Pepper. I'm a licensed architect, developer, and project manager specializing in large, complex projects. And as you can probably tell, I'm not a lifelong Angelino. I moved here in 2019, and I'm just fascinated about the projects shaping this city, and I'd like to learn more. Each episode of Building LA features conversations with the industry leaders driving those projects forward. We talk about what inspires them, the stories behind these impactful projects, and discuss what continues to excite us all about working in design, architecture, and real estate in Los Angeles. Please subscribe to Building LA on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. And if you have a minute, please write us a review. We really appreciate it, and we'd like to hear from you. Now, on to the episode. Today, we're going to discuss the story behind the interior design of a new headquarters for a beloved local supermarket chain, and how a design firm always tries to put people first in everything they do. If you're from LA, and certainly if you live in the Valley, you probably know about Viata Supermarkets. What you may not know is the history of this family-owned company that was started when in 1985, Enrique Gonzalez Sr. opened Canisteria Viata in a 1,000 square foot market in Van Nuys. The company was founded on a promise to serve the growing Hispanic population in Los Angeles by offering products and cuts of meat popular in Mexico. Fast forward to today, and Viata has 53 stores, which offer a ton of options simply not found at other big grocery chains. Still owned by the Gonzalez family, the success of the Viata supermarkets is truly inspiring. My guest today, Haley Nelson, is one of three people who lead HGA's national interior design practice. In this role, she oversees a large number of projects, including the one we'll be discussing today, which of course is the interior design of Viata's new corporate headquarters. HGA is a national interdisciplinary design firm rooted in architecture and engineering with over 1,000 employees across 12 offices, including one in LA. Their expertise covers many sectors, and they offer a wide range of services from architecture through sustainable design. But today, we're of course focusing on their interiors practice. In this episode, we'll talk about Haley's national role, the culture of HGA, and of course, how they approached the Viata HQ project. We dive into how HGA is strategizing and implementing workplace design solutions post-pandemic, and how they structure their design process to create bespoke solutions for their clients. We also talk about what it means to be a leader and a mentor with a large national role within a firm such as HGA, and Haley gives some great advice to folks starting out in their careers. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Haley. If you do, please consider taking a moment to rate the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate it. Now, onto the episode. Hi, Haley. Welcome to Building LA. Hi, Sam. Great to be here. We're very excited to have you on the show. So today we're going to talk about Viata Supermarkets and we're going to dive straight in. So I assume that most of our local listeners in LA will know the name, but from your perspective, can you tell us a little bit about Viata Supermarkets? Yes, of course. Viata Supermarkets, you know, they're a family-owned Latin American-focused grocery store chain. They have over 50 stores and growing throughout Southern California. And the company was started by the Gonzalez brothers. Uh, they came from Jalisco in Mexico, 
And they came to the United States in the 60s and they opened a carniceria in Van Nuys in 1985. And they transitioned that business into a full-service grocery store when they recognized that there was this need to really serve the Hispanic community. And so they found that niche to provide for their customers things they couldn't get anywhere else, you know, meats and spices and produce and things like that. So today they've just grown to be a real beacon in the community and they've got a, a strong focus on customer service, you know, quality and fresh and authentic food. So HGA and Viata, tell us a little bit about how that relationship came to be. How did HGA get involved with designing their new headquarters? Yeah, so Viarta is growing and they really recognized that their corporate office space was not able to support their growth or even modern ways of working. So they decided to leave their Silmar headquarters and uh, purchase three low rise buildings in a corporate office park in Santa Clarita. And after they had selected the buildings, they knew they wanted to move into one of them as their new corporate headquarters and needed an architecture and interior design firm to help them. So Viharta um, found HGA through actual word of mouth recommendation, which is always great. And we submitted a proposal and interviewed to win the project. Was it sole source then or was there a competitive bidding process? It was competitive. So they did reach out to multiple, but ultimately we were the successful team. Fantastic. So I'd imagine... You win the award, everyone's celebrating, great news. I would imagine one of the first steps is you go and visit the existing headquarters for Viata. Can you set the scene a little bit for the listeners about the existing workplace and uh, maybe what the family, I'm assuming, was trying to achieve with the new headquarters? Yes. So the current headquarters had served them well for a really long time, but it was uh, definitely apparent that the the Viarta team didn't actually want us to look where they were coming from for any real clues or, you know, references for how they wanted to work in the future, because they realized really they didn't want to repeat any of it. <laughs> so you know, we did see some parts of the office, but they actually shielded much of it from us so that we kind of had that blank slate. So, you know, the finished selections we saw, you know, maybe haven't aged as gracefully and there was, you know, a lot of dark wood and faux plants around. But even more than aesthetics, we did start to pick up on those clues just in how they were talking about the space. And it really wasn't designed for flexibility and growth. So departments were siloed and they had no place to grow. So teams over time, you know, might be separated as they expanded into other available space or taking over meeting rooms, you know, to get better proximity to their teams. Their workstations also had really high panels. I typically don't like the word cubicle, you know, when it's applied mm -hmm. to modern workstations because it conjures up those images of outdated office space. But I think it's appropriate here and how they described it. It really limited the ability for groups to collaborate or even just build those social connections. They didn't have a place for employees to gather. So with this move, they really were looking to transform their mm. workplace, you know, really create something that would inspire and motivate, you know, celebrate their Latin roots, but also create a sense of pride in their brand. And mm. that got us really excited. And they moved location, I believe. So do you know what the reason why they didn't just renovate their existing space? Did they have expansion plans? What was the reason for that? So they were already located in two different locations. Some groups had already had to migrate out. So they really had grown out of that footprint. So it didn't make sense for them, even as sort of a, a gut renovation. So making that move also kind of signified that this was a big transformation and that, you know, employees were going to a different place and, you know, sort of disrupting their commute signaled that change. Hmm. 
Interesting. So you mentioned earlier, it's a family owned business, which is obviously fantastic. And I think just resonates with a lot of people. I have my assumptions, but were they quite heavily involved in the design process? Yes, uh, the Gonzalez family has been really deeply involved, you know, with the design process, and they've been wonderful collaborators. You know, we started the project with a vision setting workshop, and it's my favorite part of the project because that's really where we dig into the deeper purpose and the why um, behind mm -hmm. the project. And in that session, we were able to co-create a design language that connected their goals and aspirations, which they were really clear on what they were looking to achieve, but they weren't sure how design could support that. So we were able to build that language and really connect, you know, their goals with design. It was also a great way to build trust. We were able to continue to build on that throughout the design process, you know, connecting back to that shared purpose. And the family and other you know, Viarta stakeholders were able to see how their participation in that session then manifested in the design solutions we presented later on. And, you know, they were there every step of the way. You talk about the visioning process, and that is obviously a very, very key part of the design process. You're building trust. You're also making a really the first impression to the owners on how you are going to be as the designer, as a collaborator. How do you make sure that's successful, that critical phase, and how long does it take or did it take on this project to kind of build that trust? It actually happened really quickly on this project. We had built a relationship just through the interview process, um, getting to know some of the stakeholders, but really came in and brought a, a confident process that I think they could see how that would manifest in success. So demonstrating that really early on and engaging them in the process. So it happened really quickly. One of the constraints, if you'll call it a constraint, mm -hmm. you know, schedule is always there, right? So they knew that this wanted to be about a, a one-year project. So we knew that we had to move quickly, you know, mm -hmm. really get that foundation solid and then have that strong trust to be able to execute on that vision. Hmm. Interesting. So you mentioned budget. What were some of the other challenges that were as part of this project and maybe at the beginning again some of those other constraints which were you know i would assume in some ways helpful in guiding the design but can you just describe to us what are those some of those constraints were yeah we knew the project was going to be transformative you know just knowing kind of how they set the stage and and really looking to the future and not looking backwards but we also knew that it was going to be focused on value. So, you know, keeping budget in mind and getting them moved in as quickly as possible, that, you know, one year timeline. So another challenge, in addition to those kind of, you know, more, more industry standard, you know, we're always trying to do mm -hmm. the best for our clients. But a challenge really was that the building was already selected. So that meant that our programming had to work, you know, when we jumped into planning. Mm -hmm. So to help them iron out a program that would meet their needs, you know, from headcount to these new types of spaces for them that they didn't have in their existing, you know, workspace and like how that would support new ways of working. So our team had to work really swiftly, but thoughtfully, you know, to kind of go through that programming and fit the space that we had basically. So a lot of the success in getting through the design process milestones I think really came down to a thoughtful planning, you know, and really putting together a team that had experience working together and could execute that vision in a creative but focused way. Mm -hmm. You know, that's always sort of that balance. Mm -hmm. But in addition to building trust so that we could move quickly. So we were able to methodically kind of move through the design process and get those decisions we needed along the way 
And so that was able to kind of balance out those outcomes of the like budget and schedule that we knew we had to meet regardless. Hmm. During this visioning period and the fact that they're moving into a very new space and they wanted a blank slate, were there any surprises on their end about maybe some of the solutions that they went with in the end that they enjoyed and they liked that was presented by HGA? And if not, then no. <laughs> no, you know, I think they knew that no matter what, it was going to be better than what they were coming from. And so in a way, everything was sort of a pleasant surprise. There definitely were some tough decisions that had to be made during programming because we knew we could only fit, you know, X number of offices, X number of workstations. But there was clearly a need for some of these other types of spaces for their different departments to collaborate. And the fact that they didn't have any real, you know, employee sort of social space and their business is about food. We knew that those kind of food centric, mm -hmm. you know, that main cafe space was going to be really important. So we dedicated quite a, a bit of space as well as introduced a new outdoor space that could be just social space, but also expand their workspace, just kind of be uh, an extension of their their workspace in, you know, what is a corporate office park. So kind mm -hmm. of creating more of an amenity space. So we knew that there were already some of these goals that were going to take up quite a bit of space. And mm -hmm. so they had to make some decisions, you know, just about who was getting what type of space and, and all of that. So I think they recognized that uh, they couldn't have it all, but that they're, you know, in the end, you know, I hope it achieved a nice balance. So you've mentioned a little bit about what's in the space. You said it's focused on food. You've got uh, more work lounge space, non-traditional office space, for lack of a better term. In terms of the program of the workspace, can you just run us through maybe the variety of different types of space that you designed for Viata? Yeah, so the building entry in the lobby are really the the first impression. It's a double height space that offered a backdrop for kind of this really dramatic welcome to employees and guests and and the place we really wanted to evoke that Viarta brand. And so I can dig into that a little bit more, but programmatically on the first level, there's an existing monumental stair that we were able to sort of reimagine and reincorporate into the space. The main break room, so that that central cafe space that I mentioned, you know, it's got a variety of seating options. That new outdoor space is connected with some new openings. So it really is this really kind of family heart of the space. There's also a test kitchen that's connected there. So there's a chef's counter, mm -hmm. um, you know, for tastings. And then kind of some general workspace with a mix of private offices and workstations. That first floor is also where uh, the buyers are located because they're meeting with vendors so often. So that proximity was important, just hmm. welcoming guests. The second floor continues the workspace. So we're able to take advantage of some existing construction to save on costs. So there were some existing built out offices and then really just try to locate any new private offices on the interior and open those workstations out onto the perimeter where possible, just so we could get the maximum balance of views and daylight. We have uh, central coffee bars that are a feature on the second and third floor with adjacent meeting rooms. So that becomes that hub. And those are also the areas where we invested more design detailing, upgraded finishes. We were able to balance the budget by really impacting those kind of more visible, more social spaces that mm -hmm. more people were going to use. 
And then that third floor also has the executive team. So it's the main boardroom and a really special club lounge space. So it's uh, kind of meant to be this destination. It's like a, a social club, if you will. So this is where mm-hmm. they might host, you know, special events like tequila tastings. And, you know, I just hope I get the invite to those. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Perfect. And you, you mentioned that the buyers and as someone who knows very little about the supermarket business, but that makes sense, there'd be buyers. So you said they're located near the front, so they have easy access to, I'm assuming the lobby, but also to meeting areas. Was there also sort of an acoustic consideration there to make sure that the people who are maybe talking a lot are away from people who want to have more heads down work? Yes, absolutely. So they were, they're actually sequestered in a suite and they all have private offices because that becomes their meeting room. So, I see. you know, they're meeting with their potential vendors in their offices, you know, having these meetings. So they're all sequestered in a suite together that's separate from the rest of the work area for that reason. Got it. And then determining the ratio of workstations to conference rooms, I think that's been a topic of conversation for all offices everywhere. How did you determine that with Viata? Yeah, you know, I mentioned that the the programming kind of had to fit. So we almost had to reverse engineer it in a way. Mm -hmm. You know, it was very collaborative uh, with the Viata team. And because they are such a familial culture, everyone does come into the office. So I think that's important to, to note just with the programming. So every employee had a dedicated seat. Um, mm. So in that regard, the programming was a little bit more straightforward and you know, we weren't running scenarios for desk sharing and things like that, that we might be doing for other clients. Um, and so because we had to sort of reverse engineer it, once we established that headcount, their growth targets, these new kind of feature spaces that we were going to be adding, the rest kind of became more of an art and less of a science using ratios. Mm. So we kind of layered on the meeting rooms, phone booths, you know, open collaborative spaces that sort of filled in those gaps that, you know, sort of felt right, which I know Mm -hmm. is a little in contrast, I guess, to, you know, a more methodical way. But yeah, it just was sort of taking that people approach and really kind of putting ourselves into the plan and saying, okay, who are those people that need to have access to meeting rooms or private spaces? And is that balanced across the floor? So yeah, we didn't really use benchmarks or ratios, you know, to guide this project. How long was the design process in total from, let's say from, yes, you got the project and we're green light contracts done, we're moving forward to your starting construction and starting CA? Yeah, we uh, interviewed at the end of 2022. So we kicked off just after the new year, January 23, Mm -hmm. Um, went right into schematic design in February design development around March, (laughs) and then delivered our CDs in June for bidding and plan check. And we just kicked off construction in August. Uh, So the completion is just after the the year. So all in, you know, still aiming for that one year project. So very fast. (laughs) It's it's a very fast timeline, Mm -hmm. particularly for a fairly sizable workplace project. Was that in the beginning kind of a cause of concern? And did, was there conversations with the client about how that could possibly get extended potentially? Yeah, I think, you know, now uh, as we get into construction, of course, there's all of the unforeseen circumstances. So, you know, we kind of offered our best guess of what, you mm-hmm. know, a construction schedule might look like. But now having that general contractor on board, 
they're able to see a little bit ahead. But, you know, we knew that it was aggressive. And so our messaging really from the beginning was we're up for the challenge, but we have to build trust and, Mm -hmm. you know, we have to be able to make quick decisions in order to be successful. So we really Mm -hmm. just set those ground rules early on of what it would take, you know, to deliver a successful project. And so far, fingers crossed, you know, everything's Mm -hmm. staying on schedule. Do you staff it differently with a with a shortened timeline? Do you put more people on it in order to expedite it? Or is it really more related to client decisions that impacts the overall schedule? I found it's more tightly uh, aligned to client decisions. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the staffing, of course, always has an ebb and flow and you'll ramp up, you know, at, at in the design phase and those milestones, especially when you're sort of managing the the visual sort of presentation component with the construction documents uh, mm-hmm. that's always sort of that moment of tension when you're trying to move both forward at the same time with the same team yeah yep um, but yeah overall we we didn't actually overstaff the project to make up for it it really was just about keeping to that methodical you know timeline of what decisions we needed to make and so that meant that we didn't always necessarily show what every corner was going to be and so it's kind of through building that relationship and now you know with our weekly meetings in construction we're able to go through and say okay this is why we did this or you know they're sort of especially as they see things you know getting built you know hopefully there are no surprises because everything's kind of following the line of what we presented um but that's that's the idea that you know moving quickly you can't show everything so you show those primary things, you build trust, and we know that we're kind of following that through in the details. Got it. That makes sense. You say you were working very closely with the family. Did they have a real estate team or did they hire a third-party project manager to interface? Was there someone between you and, and, and the family during this process? So the VP of construction is actually kind of our main conduit. So it wasn't a third-party PM. I mean, he oversees the construction of all of their retail stores. Mm-hmm. Um, so he knows construction, um, you know, but so it's a little bit different just on the office side of things. But yeah, he's been a great collaborator and connector. Right. So you mentioned that a couple of differences with this project compared to other workplace projects, one of them being one-to-one desks. Another one being very, very tight timeline, although that does happen on other projects. What are some other kind of key differences that for you make this project distinct from other ones in, in LA or, or other parts of your career? Yeah, this project was unique compared to other projects in LA because it was so deeply rooted in connecting people to a place. And in this mm. case, it was both Southern California and Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. You know, so the tie to roots outside of LA was really inspiring. It gave the project kind of this depth that went beyond trendy aesthetics, but a true purpose for why we made every design move that we did. Brand really became kind of that central driver, which, you know, is often so much of of what we do try to bring uh, to all of our corporate clients because that brand, you know, is their sort of DNA. Mm -hmm. But this was also really unique because the brand that the public sees, uh, the grocery stores, it's really colorful. It's vibrant. It's mm-hmm. you know whimsical patterns. This you know these the this like bold signage. It really tells you where you are, and it's mm-hmm. kind of you know over the top on purpose. Mm-hmm. But for the office, the Vallarta team really wanted a contrast. 
from that colorful expression of the brand in the stores to a more calm, more sophisticated expression. So that was really unique too, you know, kind of having a client that has such a strong pre-established brand, but they they wanted to intentionally kind of distance hmm. themselves from it for the office. So when you walk into the lobby of their new office, you're transported to a beach resort in Mexico. You know, oh, there's wow. soft forms, curved corners, you know, these like terracotta colors, mm-hmm. natural textures. You know, there you kind of feel like you're in this luxurious hotel, not an office. And that mm. was really something that they wanted to bring to their employees more than anything, just because they recognized that their office, you know, really wasn't sending that brand colorful or not, you know, it wasn't sending that brand before. So really putting that kind of care and focus. Got it. And I'm assuming the brand became most apparent in those social spaces in the office. Were there flourishes of color palette as well that were on the FF&E or was it mainly those those more central social spaces? Uh, definitely focus more on those central spaces, but the FF&E definitely has flavors of it to connect. So you don't sort of I think the worst thing is when you go into an office and you know, oh, they spent all of the money here. And then Mm -hmm. you walk back where the people actually work and there was no investment. So we definitely wanted to extend that same care, but, you know, in just a more minimal palette. How do you feel when a project like this is completed and you've gone through the punch list and the client is hopefully very happy? Oh, I mean, completing a transformative project like this one is the best feeling for me as a designer. You know, I mean, it's cliche maybe, but I'm like getting chills just imagining those employees walking into the new office and knowing that we're impacting people in such a positive way and delivering something beyond what they even could have imagined. It's just Mm -hmm. the most gratifying thing about what we do. You know, an interior design is so much more than just crafting beautiful spaces. It's about shaping experiences and giving people the opportunity to really bring their best self um, mm-hmm. to everything that they do and showing someone that someone else thought about even the most mundane parts of their day. Mm-hmm. I love being able to create spaces where where people can feel that impact of design, you know, feel the care and mm-hmm. also ultimately, you know, really feel seen and valued. You know, it's it's the best. There's a lot of truth in that. You want to see that they're investing in you and the place that you're spending a lot of time. And in a place like Viata, where it sounds like a lot of these folks, they have to come in five days a week and they are situated at their desk. They're not going out on on site tours and doing all that kind of other kind of stuff, not going on travel. You need to make sure that there's a ton of effort and visible cues that are in the space in order to for, for, in order for people to feel good right that's the end objective i'd also i would assume that it helps with their recruitment as well Viata, when they're competing for other talent yeah that's that's the goal so we'll see how that pans out but i love hearing those stories even anecdotally after the project's done and and how you know people do bring a different sense of care even to the office just as an aside on a completely different project. I remember someone just seeing me back in the office and they said, you know what? We weren't sure about where you were locating that cafe, you know, and it was so central and so open and we were really nervous. You know, everyone kind of goes through that, like, oh, the the dirty dishes in the sink. They said, but people are actually putting their dishes away and, you know, like <laughs> without anybody having to ask them, it's just yep. because they can tell that 
oh, we invested, you know, in this. So it's great to hear those, those sorts of things, because I think ultimately design is so linked to behavior. So even Mm -hmm. if you're not, you know, posting a sign and telling someone how to use a space or what to do, they get it. And, you know, being able to see that, like, it's that Wizard of Oz moment, (laughs) you know, it's Mm -hmm. kind of like the the man or the woman behind the curtain, (laughs) you know, sort of orchestrating things and it works like that's, that's magic. (laughs) So Haley, we're going to, we're going to change tack a little bit uh, for the second half of this conversation and talk about you and, and your career. So I'd like you to take us way, way back and talk about what led you into interior design in the first place. Yeah. So as a kid, we'll go way, way back. Um, you know, I, I loved art. So I was always drawing and making things. And so I think that definitely just sort of had this solid artistic background. But I also recognized really early on that I could move things around in my bedroom and it would make me feel different ways. Like if my desk was facing the window, I could see the trees, you know, when I was drawing. Or if I moved my bed, which much to the dismay of my parents that I was moving my furniture around this much. But, you know, if I moved my bed and I couldn't see the door, you know, at night I would get scared. And so it was this like spatial awareness that, I mean, I had no idea what that meant at the time, but, um, you know, that I was starting to build from an early age. And then I loved graphic design. I was like a collector of things. So I loved gourmet magazine covers. They had these beautiful, minimal uh, photography on the cover, and uh, there was no text except for this, like, script of the gourmet, you know, name. And their color palettes were always beautiful, and, you know, I didn't know why I liked them, but I was always ripping off the covers of these magazines, and I became the editor of my high school yearbook. So it was sort of all of these experiences, like fusing graphic design, like storytelling of capturing, you know, high school life and Mm -hmm. the spatial awareness it all kind of came together for me in interior design. So when I went to college, my interior design program at the University of Florida is knitted together with architecture and landscape architecture as well. Mm. And, you know, that's where I really learned how to shape space and, and give language to some of these things that I wasn't sure, you know, how to even really describe or, or why I liked the things that I did. Yeah. And ultimately just sort of learning how to shape that, that human experience. So moving forwards, you were recruited by HGA and I believe you were at, you were at DC, you're in DC at that time. So you were recruited by HGA to move out to Los Angeles. I'm curious, how well did you know LA at the time and what was the opportunity with HGA that led you there? Yeah. So yeah, I relocated from Washington DC to LA. It was the end of 2019 and I'd really only known LA from vacations. Hmm. You know, my husband and I realized that we had visited so many times, um, that that transition actually felt really natural and familiar. And the thing that struck me in moving was that the, the vacation LA and the reality of LA really aligned for me, you know, and I, I'm not sure if that's like more how I like to travel or just sort of trying to get it more of those authentic experiences. But I really felt that the promise of the place when visiting kind of aligned with that reality and it made it just really natural and and seamless. Um, 
an opportunity was that HDA was looking to grow the corporate practice in LA. So to complement the expertise and, you know, really the recognition that they already had, the brand awareness around healthcare, higher education, and the arts. So I had spent my career primarily focused on corporate interiors. So this was an exciting challenge for me, you know, not only being able to contribute to a practice, but really be in on the ground floor and helping to build it. So I love, you know, the strategic thinking and the setting a vision for projects, but also being able to bring those skills to impact our studio and ultimately the firm as a whole, you know, from a business perspective. So it all just helped me make that leap. It sounds like it was at the end of the day, a fairly easy decision then to move from DC to LA. It was, I think, you know, it was a, a maybe a bigger sort of cultural move. But like I said, I felt like it kind of, it had such a familiarity already that it Mm -hmm. was just kind of ready for that next chapter. Mm -hmm. You had definitely more familiarity with it than I did when I moved out here. I will say that I had been here twice for a total of, I think, three days. Wow. And And it worked out. And it totally worked out. But my impressions when I moved here were different to when I had visited. And I'd say that I've enjoyed living here more than I enjoyed being a tourist here. Interesting. Yeah, that's, that's my perspective on it. So diving into HGA a little bit, I didn't realize, and maybe I'm embarrassed to say this, I'm not sure, but HGA goes all the way, the history of HGA goes all the way back to the 1950s. The firm has been responsible for a lot of really great architecture in the country, some great mid-century architecture in particular. There's one building in researching the firm that really stood out to me called the O'Shaughnessy Auditorium in St. Paul, which actually won an AIA National Design Award and is actually still being used today, which is great to see. I'm curious, these firms that have had a lot of history, and we're now talking almost 70 years or over 70 years of this firm being around, was there a particular style that you identified with HGA, both either from architectural or interior design? You know, because of that history, that depth, I really didn't associate a particular style with the firm when I joined. And maybe because I am coming, you know, more from that interior perspective and and those projects do tend to reflect so much more of the organization or the users, Mm -hmm. there really wasn't that sense of style. The thing that stood out to me was the people and how they really connected with clients and, and users, you know, really to find that right expression to meet their goals. And even with buildings, you know, they, it's such a range of style. And I think that's, um, it's really refreshing to see that, you know, it can continue to evolve and reflect those communities that we serve. So would you say the culture of HDA then is to be very human centered and very people centric, both from a client perspective, but also the team itself, the team at HDA and all the various offices? Yes, very much so. Um, That is definitely what comes to mind when I think of the culture. You know, we're an interdisciplinary practice. So we've got 12 offices across the country, and there's expertise in so many different disciplines. And that was also really, really exciting to be a part of, you know, from architecture to interior design, engineering, building technologies and AV, landscape, lighting and design researchers. It's been so cool being able to collaborate with such a range of experts. And the firm you know, started in Minneapolis. And because of that Midwest heart, <laughs> the mm-hmm. culture is so people focused. And I just mm. 
I really felt it from the first day I joined. You know, I I tell people, you know, it just felt like a Midwestern hug, <laughs> you know, in joining. It was like you were being welcomed into a family. Yeah. And um, there is a genuine care for each person and how we can all work together in pursuit of, you know, design excellence and the impact for our clients. And, and the fact that everyone is so generous with their knowledge, so all of these different experts, it's really easy for us to just, you know, seamlessly kind of tap into that network and, mm -hmm. and everyone's just really generous and wanting to help, you know, so that's been really great to sort of experience that from a cultural perspective. And you would say that that's because of the Midwestern foundation of the company, because it seems like when you are a company of HGA scale where there's multiple offices around the country. Is there any, are there any international offices at this time? No, just national. Just national. That maintaining a culture, particularly where everyone feels warm, welcome, and, and there's a warm hug, as you say, it's quite hard to maintain that. It, it, do you get the sense there's an active practice in, in, in at HGA to try and maintain that and build that and, and foster that? I do. I think, you know, 12 offices is still, you know, a, a small number of offices compared to other firms of similar sort of depth in history. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, really at its core, it, it has, the culture has stretched across all of those locations. And, you know, of course it kind of has its flavor, you know, in LA, we might be a little more casual and our clients look a little different than the Midwest or East Coast clients. But those values really are the same, I think, because we have such a strong alignment um, on that vision, you know, mm. of the firm at a leadership level that then is represented, you know, in every office. So in 2022, you were one of three people selected to lead the national practice of interior design at HGA, which is pretty great. So tell us what it means to be in that role and give us a sense of your responsibilities. Yes. So HGA launched a national practice of interior design uh, last year, and our goal was really to grow a diverse and strong discipline that's better connected across each of the project types we serve. So before forming this national practice, interior design was really uh, embedded in each of the uh, market sectors, you know, that we that we serve. And so that can lead to some siloing and, uh, you know, there's so many shared skills. So being able to create this connected practice we established a leadership model where there are three national leaders. So Paula Storstein is our national practice leader. Uh, Lisa Macaluso is our national business development leader. And I'm the national expertise leader. So I love that we all represent different strengths and geographies, you know, across the firm. And so my role is, is ultimately about design, but intentionally framed around uh, connecting expertise, strengths, research. It's meant to empower our interior designers to elevate their own design solutions, you know, not being a singular design voice, you know, for the practice. I see myself more as a, a coach and a connector. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I love being able to bring out the best in our teams, you know, allowing them to come up with those, you know, better, more impactful design outcomes and ultimately elevate the firm as a whole. Would you say you're a mentor to a lot of the younger staff or junior staff at HGA? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's been such a fulfilling role, you know, that I was able to be a mentor, you know, on my own projects or sort of in my sphere of influence before. But now being able to, you know, elevate that across the firm has been so rewarding. Being able to meet designers 
all sorts of different backgrounds and levels and, you know, in all of our offices, it's been really great. And what advice would you give to say an interior designer, they've just come out of undergrad or graduate school, they've joined the firm and they're just getting their feet wet? Mm, Great question. Yeah. I mean, I, I think really the best thing, the most important thing that I can impart is the curiosity to get to the why behind everything we do. You know, every project has their own unique recipe of stakeholders, vision, challenges, opportunities, all those ingredients. And it makes it really difficult to just repeat what we've done before. And and I think it's a an easy trap to fall into, like, oh, let's just do it the way that we did before. But what I love about interior design is that it's a different puzzle every time. And so because of that, and as our teams get larger or projects more complex, it can be really easy to lose the nuance that makes a project successful if you don't understand the why. So my advice for younger designers is to always be curious, ask questions, you know, dig deeper to find that why. And how many interior designers do you have at HGA now? We have uh, just over 130 interior designers across all of our offices. And as a firm, we're just over a thousand employees. So we're a small but mighty group. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So when I was an architect and particularly when I was studying architecture, I think that I potentially arrogantly thought that I could then do interior design and that one could lead to the other. But I've realized partly because I think that I'm married to someone who did an interior design degree, that my skills don't translate very easily to interior design. I'm curious how you approach it. And I think you've talked a little bit about that in terms of getting to the why, but how you approach interior design and what's made you kind of successful in this role? Mm. Yeah, no, and thank you for the question. I think that's why it is so important to collaborate with all of our disciplines because everyone is sort of bringing a different perspective and approach. So for me, you know, my process in interior design comes down to some of the things that I've, you know, touched on, but co-creating a project vision, developing that deep understanding of people and the people that the space will serve, because that may not always be the stakeholders making the decisions. And then pushing those design ideas beyond what's been done before, you know, so I love kind of getting into those drivers, like discovering those moments that are really going to matter, have the most impact, you know, that North Star that's really going to guide the rest of the project. So, you know, I kind of I went into that in more detail, but I think when it comes to the people, it's so important to understand the people that the space will actually be serving, you know, whether those are those known stakeholders, because they, of course, still matter but it's also those that we might be forgetting. And when we think about, you know, office space and workplaces, that's not always the most apparent, you know, well, oh, well, who are we forgetting? We've surveyed, you know, all of the staff, we've, we've, we've talked to everyone, right? But we may not have, there are folks that use the space that, you know, we could be making their lives easier or more difficult, you know, with our choices. So we think about the janitor coming in and, you know, cleaning up at the end of the day, are we making that person's job even harder by where we've located, you know, the janitor closet or what finishes we've put on the floor, you know, as they're sort of wheeling around? Even just that experience of maybe that that new mom who wasn't in the focus group, you know, but has to use the mother's room now. And we located it somewhere that, you know, quote, fits on the plan. 
but we've actually made that person have to walk by, you know, some judging coworkers in private offices or, you know, made them feel uncomfortable. So, you know, just some examples of how thinking about a variety of different perspectives, you know, and how we're shaping the space can really impact somebody's day to day. So that's really important to me. And then, you know, that sort of pushing beyond what's been done, it's, it's, um, you know, our world is just so flooded, absolutely flooded with access to images of beautiful things, <laughs> beautiful spaces. You know, yes, there are those shows on TV that make it look like it's as easy as a snap of a finger and a 24-hour, you know, overhaul. But that's what our clients and users are sort of becoming more exposed to. You know, they're seeing all of these images. They are on Pinterest, right? They do, you know, they do all of those things. And I love when clients get excited about design, but I use it as a tool. I don't say, yes, great, we can deliver that that's been done, you know, five years ago or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. It comes back to like how we transform what they're giving us back to that why, you know, and, and using that as a tool to see what it is about that that resonated and, you know, sort of inspiring more of a conversation. So I love being able to kind of push beyond and not just sort of take what mm. we're receiving. I'm really curious, actually. Do you think that Pinterest and Instagram and the fact that clients now have access to an abundance of ideas, has that made your job easier or harder? You know, it's a good question. I kind of think easier in some regard because design language is a little more accessible. Mm -hmm. I think it's some of the similar conversations we're starting to have about AI and AI generated imagery and where does that leave the creative, you know, in these when someone can you know, our clients, right, could, could perhaps do that. So mm -hmm. I think if we see it as a positive, and, and again, it's not just sort of saying it's diminishing what we do because they've given us the answer. It It's only the answer if you let it be the answer. I think if you use that as a start of a conversation, that's going to be a good thing. You're starting at sort of an elevated point than someone who maybe didn't have the same design vocabulary. But it, it takes the human, the designer, you know, in the AI conversation, but it's like, it takes that person to facilitate a deeper conversation to move beyond it just becoming a directive. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, people are much more design centered or design savvy, I should say, than I think mm -hmm. they were 10 years ago. Yeah. And everyone I think understands what a good photo photograph is these days where whereas 10 years ago that wasn't necessarily the case so I think it makes them appreciate it more in the end too you know when they get to experience those spaces so we can't have a conversation about workplace without touching on the the theme and the pandemic and we are not going to dwell into it because we've all heard and talked about this mm -hmm. far too much mm -hmm. and the amount of discourse around hybrid work is frankly overwhelming but I am curious, as someone who works in interior design for workplace, what do you think are the trends that will have a lasting impact on interior design and office design? Yeah, okay. You want the crystal ball. <laughs> I, this, is a, this is the big question. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I think we're always moving forward, right? We're evolving, adapting. That isn't new. But I think anytime that there's significant change, which can happen with any project, but especially as quickly and as broadly as 2020 brought on, there is this knee-jerk reaction to resist and go back to what is known and comfortable and, and to think that going backwards is the best thing. But of course, it's not, right? I mean, you know, we have these leaders that are 
thinking about these costs and it's a tough pill to swallow to disrupt things so quickly. But despite all of that, we have to evolve because that's what we've been doing. We know that that the only constant is change. So Mm -hmm. I I think the most lasting impact uh, of this time is that people realize that they have more power than they thought. So it's not saying that this is a trend in terms of like, if you do this thing and here's your magic bullet, you know, or the magic mm-hmm. key. <laughs> but I think it's a really exciting thing that that people now have sort of more of a self-awareness uh, that they can unlock their own potential, you know, and sort of, I think the companies that recognize that and really take advantage of that and encourage it are going to be the ones that succeed because people are such an asset, you know, to every organization. And so, you know, like you were describing with your experience, if you know that somebody's invested in you, you're kind of more willing to invest in them. So for me, that's the biggest shift, that sort of position of power that, you know, people have more of a a say in their work experience than maybe they thought. And so Mm -hmm. to continue to push that. A lot of companies are wondering and asking the question, what is it that my employees want in the office? What's going to bring them back? And I've heard everything from daycare to a basketball court <laughs> to a series of chefs and world-class cuisine. And I'm not convinced by any of them, although I do think daycare is clever and and good work, but it's operationally intensive. Mm-hmm. What have you seen? And, and just maybe just your own perspective and not HGA's perspective. But what do you what do you think is something that brings people back to the office? Hmm. You know, for me personally, it's so much about people, which I'm sensing now is a common thread in everything that I've uh, mm-hmm. spoken about mm-hmm. today. But you know, even if I'm on back to back calls, I I just love being around other people. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think for me, in addition to that, I think the boundary of that work and home, you know the office will always be my first choice for me personally. But I know that, you know, the commutes being what they are in LA, I completely understand that it's a burden that many people will not want to willingly take on if they can be productive and, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of, uh, you know, be happier working remotely. And we've been thinking a lot about that, that concept of return on commute versus return on investment. I didn't coin that, but I love it. You know, it's suggesting mm-hmm. that shift in power again, you know, from that employer to the employee. So, you know, of course the company wants a return on their investment in their real estate, you know, to have their investment in having an office space. But if they're not actually investing in the experience, you know, they're probably better off getting rid of it, right? Leesman is a, a great organization and one that I always love kind of tuning in to hear their latest research and they've described it the best I've heard. It's it's like a hotel. You know, you wouldn't travel somewhere and pay to stay in a place that has a lesser experience than your own home, right? You choose a hotel because it offers something greater than, than your home experience can. So whether that's the beach or a concierge to arrange your dinners or really great sheets, you know, it's the same sort of thing that offices are up against. You know, would someone want to give up their amazing espresso machine at home for that generic brewed coffee that's been sitting around for a few hours? Probably not, right? Mm-hmm. So, of course, it's more than coffee. But, you know, like you said, you know, it's that that list of sparkly amenities. Like, it has to be more than that. Um, but that's the puzzle that we have to figure out. It's what is it about that experience for that organization, for those people? You know, so that's 
with the help of, uh, you know, consultants and professionals like HGA, that's what we're trying to help our clients figure out. It's what, what is that new purpose for the office? Mm-hmm. Because if, if you sort of define that for people of what the office is for and then what it's not for, it sort of opens up that permission for them to have autonomy and then they'll mm-hmm. want to come in versus being told what they need to do. Mm-hmm. I like that answer. So I'm curious if there's a project that you're most proud of and it, it can be Viata. You can, you can say that as the answer, but it doesn't have to be. Well, you know, the the current projects are often the ones I'm like most proud of mm-hmm. at the moment because that's kind of where I am personally in my own experience, you know, the things I'm kind of most interested in at the moment, like those are the things that are swirling around in my head. So I would absolutely say Vierta. Okay, great. <laughs> and I th- I think that you've answered this a little bit, but as I want to sort of round out the conversation, I'm hearing a lot about people. So I, I have a sense of what the answer will be, but what brings you joy in being Ooh. an interior designer? I love this question because I, I feel like we don't talk about the joy in our work as much as we should. So I love this. You know, For me, it, I mean, it is about people, but it's about creatively solving problems with other people. It's like when we can get, whether we're in the you know weeds of really imagining those design concepts that are going to solve those challenges or we're comparing materials to find the ones that are going to do the least amount of harm to people mm-hmm. in the environment, figuring out things on the fly in the field that maybe didn't turn out how we anticipated. Like I get so much joy out of that process of being able to find solutions with other people that are, you know, thoughtful and creative and ultimately, you know, kind of the most appropriate. So it's through that collaboration that I, I just get lit up. Okay. I love that answer. All right. Last two questions. And these are questions I ask every guest on the podcast. First one is, what continues to inspire you about working in LA? I love that there is such a commitment to craft in the city. You know, everyone just really feels like they do what they love. You know, that type of energy is really infectious. And I just, I love being able to work with and for (laughs) such a variety of people with such a range of crafts. Okay. And then your three favorite buildings in LA, and they can be places as well. Mm. I really love Edward Durrell Stone's Pacific Mercantile Bank building on Wilshire in Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. Timeless arched facade, you know, it feels very current, even though it was designed in the 60s. I am obsessed with mid-century architecture. So, you know, that aside, but I love that this building actually doesn't have the expression we might expect from that time. Mm-hmm. The Eames house. So case study house number yep. eight, you know, in the Palisades. I know I said I loved mid-century architecture and this one may be a little obvious, but um, but I just love it. It was actually uh, the first place that I visited with my now husband on our first trip out to LA over 10 years ago. Oh, wow. Um, so it holds a special place for me. You know, I had read so much about it, but to actually be there and stand in the meadow and, you know, mm-hmm. take it all in was really magical. So is he an architect as well or is he in he's design? Not, he's okay. not. He uh, he did study uh, undergrad a couple of years in architecture. So he has like, you know, an appreciation for it, mm-hmm. but went on to uh, to to the finance side. So he's a good balance to my my creativity, but has a deep Smart appreciation. Man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't have to convince him too hard. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. And then the last, so it is a place. So the strand, you know, I'm Hmm. running the Malibu half marathon later this year. So I said it, so I'm committed (laughs) and I, um, I love running along the strand. So you've got all of Santa Monica kind of built up on one side, you know, the top of the cliffs and the openness of the sand and the ocean, 
you know, you're kind of feeling connected to the city and nature at the same time. It's pretty magical. I couldn't agree more. That's a beautiful <laughs> spot. Well, Haley Nelson, thank you so much for joining Building LA. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Awesome. Thanks, Sam. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, please consider subscribing to Building LA on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. As a bonus, if you have a couple of minutes, please consider rating the podcast and writing us a brief review. We'd really appreciate it. And of course, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to email me at sam at buildinglapodcast.com. Hope you tune in again soon.